being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right now today i am joined by bill and boltzman booty <laughs> how are you how are you guys doing today doing great super excited thanks for having us <laughs> yeah appreciate it now for those who are not on twitter Bill and Boltzmann Booty are both, uh, I guess I would say, Oklahoma City bombing build. Uh, and I would consider them experts. Uh, I know that they are modest and they would probably point to other researchers that we will definitely talk about. But like, I consider them to be very well acquainted with this information. I have read their threads. I'm a huge fan, but I am going to be mostly like facilitating you guys talking about this because like who you guys know a lot so <laughs> um maybe maybe just real quick we'll go one by one like bill like how did you get into the oklahoma city bombing as a research topic well i had started to get into parapolitics um four or five years ago and i was sort of jumping around from topic to topic and I realized that Oklahoma City was a huge blind spot for me Mm -hmm. Uh, so the first book I read was um, checked out from the public library was the Andrew Gumbel and Roger Charles book Oklahoma City Investigation Mist and while it is a good introductory text it left me with a lot of questions Mm -hmm. Um, and I did a, a Twitter thread on that book, and I was very blunt about how many questions it left unanswered. And then I, and then I went way to the deep end and um, checked out. Someone replied, replied to me, and I need to find out who that was. Mm-hmm. Um, someone replied to me and told me to read Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh by Dr. Wendy Painting. And that is probably the most remarkable um, book about deep politics that I've personally read. I know there's a ton of great ones out there about a variety of topics, but that one really lit a fire um, under me because it outlined the different um, problems with the story of Timothy McVeigh and uh, many, many unanswered questions about it. Um, And from there, it's just been, I mean, between the stuff that Mr. Booty is working on um, diving through the different archives that are available online, thanks to Richard Booth, um, who's another great researcher. Um, it sort of just kind of keeps building and keeps keeps working its way outward and uh, diving into the deeper parts of the story. Interesting. And what about you, Mr. Boltzmann Booty? Um, yeah, kind of similar. Uh, I got, I don't know, after like, the whole Whitmer kidnapping thing, like when that started like coming out in the news, I was like, that sounds fake. And I just started (laughs) like reading obsessively about like, you know, just intelligence involvement in various terror plots. Um, And uh, also posting incessantly about it on Twitter. And I think through that, I came across Bill's thread about aberration of the heartland of the real. And I read that and was like, well, what's going on here. And so I had, I bought that book, uh, and, uh, read that and yeah, I mean, it just, it makes it very, very clear that this is a, goes very deep and is a very, uh, you know, rich topic with a lot of, uh, 
tie-ins. And so uh, that kind of got me obsessed. And then I was Googling around and I found Richard Booth's um, yeah, archive uh, that, that Bill mentioned, um, which is right now, I think, hosted just on the Libertarian Institute's website by like Scott Horton. But um, before too long, it's also going to be up on um, our Hidden Histories uh, website as well. So that's cool. It'll be hosted in a couple of places. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's like full of hundreds of news articles and uh, hundreds of like primary, um, you know, source documents like from like, yeah, FBI 302s and court documents and all kinds of stuff like that. So um, yeah, during, yeah, kind of while everything was sort of weird and shut down because of COVID, I just would like after work, like when I was <laughs> locked up in my in my room <laughs> but just read about that stuff for like eight hours a night or something and <laughs> post obsessively about it so yeah that that's kind of but yeah ultimately bill bill is the one that got me into this uh uh you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i mean what what I like about both of you, honestly, though, is that like you actually do acknowledge that this stuff, getting into stuff like this, is fun, even if the topic is not exactly pleasant, right? Right. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just seeing the connections that are made is, is fun. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you feel like you're doing detective work in some ways. So, you know, it's a very serious topic. But like, and then you know building the relationships with other people like getting to know Richard Booth and Booty and everybody that's you know uh, sympathetic to this kind of research has been been very good oh yeah uh, I wanted to ask you guys because my <laughs> it's probably not as cool but like my first introduction to the idea that there was something more going on with the Oklahoma City bombing was actually of all things I read that Gore Vidal book oh yes and like, I, I wanted to ask you guys, I, I didn't put it on the list of things to talk about. I should have, but like, I wanted to like ask you what you thought of that because it's like really weird. I haven't read it myself. Yeah. I've read, I think he, didn't he publish part of it as an excerpt? Yeah. It was like an essay and then it turned into a book or something. Yeah. Yeah. In Vanity, in Vanity Fair, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Gorbadal, <laughs> I guess I can't, I'm not knowledgeable enough to comment on it. I've just, I, reading the essay was very strange and um, I, I don't know what to make of him exactly. Like what, yeah. what, the, what his whole deal was there, if that was some kind of a shit coding thing or what that was. Because he sort of takes the stance that Timothy McVeigh was a patriot and or innocent, but also guilty. <laughs> in a really like confounding like way right <laughs> um, yeah, I read just the essay um but yeah he did like his own work right like he like went and like t- like to try and gather like you know evidence that the fbi suppressed or something i, I think or- correct me if i'm wrong guys i think you might have even interviewed mcveigh i thought he had he i thought he had a some kind of he wrote letters back and forth to them. They yeah, that's pri- probably more. Yeah, he had yeah. Pr- prison correspondence with McVeigh. Yes, mm. um, but and we'll get into this. But like the problem with taking McVeigh at his word is that he told so many different people so many different stories that I don't even know if he knew. It's hard to take anything what he said at face value, or take it straight, or believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, he legitimately like straight up admitted that the bombing was 
you know, a sting operation to his first public defenders, but then they quit. Then <laughs> he, uh, you know, never, never admitted that to, you know, his further, the, the people that he ended up being defended by. On, so it, it, Weird. Right. He, he told his mother and his his sister that he was still in special operations. That he wasn't. That he was still in the army. Right. And through the timing of the bombing, through that, um, and, and I mean, so they clearly believed that he was still involved in the army in some kind of official capacity, even if no one else did. That's the story he was telling them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like she she said she's uncovered like um, FBI documents like where. The FBI had tapped the McVeigh family's phones and they have scripts of the mom and the sister talking and they're like, like, why are they, why do they keep saying that he dropped out of the military? He got even rolled in special forces and then joined a domestic like operations group. What, where is this narrative of dropping out of the forces coming from? Like, they're just like confused talking to each other about that. And uh, I think his sister even says something about like, I gave them the documents showing this. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? Like, yeah, pretty, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you guys imagine like like a Saul Goodman type public defender who just like walks into a case and the guy <laughs> is just like, oh yeah, this was a sting operation <laughs> that went sideways, and it, the lawyer's just like, oh fuck, what is this? <laughs> the the lawyer, his first, so it was Susan Otto, and I can't remember the man's name. His first coil. Coyle, okay. So they, yeah, John Coyle, that's who it was. And they, John Coyle had been in the military and he hmm. heard this story and he said, nope. And he went into hiding. <laughs> he was like, absolutely not. I don't want any part of this. I'm out of here. He went into hiding after he heard the story the first time. And then that's how Stephen Jones came to represent him because those first two quit. Jeez. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let me, okay. Let me, let me ask you guys just uh, for my listeners who maybe don't know the general contours of the Oklahoma city bombing. And then a few of the most salient facts that possibly suggest the, uh, the official narrative, you know, is not maybe what it seems. Okay. Booty. I wrote up a little kind of spiel for this, if you want, just with the basic facts and then you can kind of jump in if you want. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Okay. So the the basic facts of the bombing, um, April 19th, 1995, um, around 9 a.m., a rider truck bomb was parked in front of the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Uh, 168 people, including 19 children, were killed, nearly 700 injured. Um, it was a very big bomb. Over 300 buildings in a 16-block radius were damaged. Um, according to the government's official narrative presented at the trials of, of the two main defendants, Timothy McVeigh and um, Terry Nichols, uh, the bomb was constructed by McVeigh and Nichols alone and driven to the front of the Murrah building by McVeigh alone. Uh, Nichols was not there. He had an airtight alibi for the day of the bombing, he was not present. He was in, back home in Kansas. And that was the extent of the conspiracy um, in practical terms, according to the government. Another friend of theirs that they had been in basic training with, uh, a man named Michael Fortier, uh, knew about the bomb plot. He wound up taking a plea deal um, and testifying against McVeigh and Nichols. 
Mm. Uh, and then being put into witness protection. But according to the government's official story, um, those three guys were the only three that knew anything about the what was about to take place uh, in Oklahoma City. Um, there are about a million reasons why you should doubt the official narrative. Um, yeah. the, the, the one that I kind of lead with, the, the, the most uh, straightforward one is that um, about 24 separate eyewitnesses claim that McVeigh was accompanied by um, another man on the day of the bombing. He had a passenger in the rider truck with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these witnesses are, are extremely credible. A lot of those witnesses were together when it happened um, and kind of saw the, one of them was at a, he stopped and asked for directions at a, uh, like a car shop, maintenance shop, a few blocks from the, the Murrah building. And there were three, three people working there. I think there was three. And they just said, yeah, it was McVeigh. And he had someone sitting in his truck with him. Um, so things like that. Um, so who, who was this person? Um, he was, came to be known as John Doe number two. He's the, the infamous sketch, um, that, that you, would probably see if you started Googling John Doe number two from the, from the Oklahoma city bombing case, if his sketch will pop up and you've probably seen it somewhere before. Mm-hmm. Your Abby on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. My avatar on Twitter. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, hey, if you see him, you should make sure you contact the uh, federal Bureau of investigation. I just wanted to mention that too. If you see that guy, make sure you contact somebody. Uh, he was, uh, there was a manhunt conducted by the FBI um, one of the most expensive manhunts in U.S. history. And a few months later, the FBI decided that this man, John Doe number two, did not exist. Um, and that all of those witnesses were mistaken. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of the first, you know, even if you're very skeptical of conspiracy theories or conspiracy research or whatever you want to call it in general, those, I, everybody agrees on that basic set of facts. And that should send up a lot of alarm bells. Um, and the other, the other thing to note, and this will kind of segue into the person that we want to talk about today, Andreas Strassmeyer, is that at, Mc, at McVeigh's trial, they never once introduced any evidence as to McVeigh's whereabouts between April 17th and April 19th the three days leading up to the bombing because just about every eyewitness that saw McVeigh during those three days saw him with other people, multiple, Mm -hmm. multiple other people. And they didn't want anybody to know, you know, who was he calling during that time frame, and (laughs) who was he around? So, you know, who who was he consorting with in the the years leading up to the bomb going off? Um, And that's kind of the, once you start asking those questions and you start hunting for the answers to those questions, you start to go down some very, very interesting rabbit holes. Oh yeah. Like for the listener's sake, if you haven't had the pleasure of reading threads by either of these two gentlemen, like it gets very weird, very fast. And this is not these guys interjecting the weirdness. That's just where the story goes. Right. I think I once (laughs) tweeted at you, um, booty and i just because you found out about jack oliphant who is a 
a weird CIA connection in Arizona. And I just said, how many of these fucking guys are there? (laughs) (laughs) It never ends. It really never ends. It really never ends. Well, it freaked me out too, because with Oliphant, like I've recently been looking along the lines of that whole Arizona culty kind of thing. And like, I was just like, oh, geez. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it just... (laughs) It, it, it really makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Like, I don't know. There's so many of them, but none to me are as interesting and as compelling and as transparently connected to intelligence operations as Andreas Strassmeyer. That's right. I really liked you guys zeroed in on maybe the most, like you said, most transparently what the hell is going on with this guy. Uh, like part of the story separate from like whatever all the super weird stuff with timothy mcveigh like you said you can't really trust him either way but like this guy now we can really look at this guy's life and say okay there was like a conspiracy right right that's my opinion anyway yep (laughs) yeah i mean uh, yeah and he's you know one of the people that is most clearly like connected to a bomb plot in <laughs> to hit the Murrow federal building. Like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's completely undeniable. Yeah. Now to get this ball rolling, so to speak, uh, where do we start with Strassmeyer? So I would, I would begin with the sedition trial. Hmm. So 1988, the federal government um, put 14 men up on trial uh, for they were indicted for seditious conspiracy in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, All of these men had various affiliations with white supremacists, survivalists, anti-government separatist organizations. And they were, I mean, we can kind of list some of the different names of them. Um, The order or this and part of the order they even the order had a, a set on its own separate i guess uh subgroup called the silent brotherhood that was like a real heavy group they like did some crazy shit they did some really crazy shit they are most famous for killing uh there was a um a liberal kind of a radio host shock jock kind of guy named alan berg mm-hmm. who is jewish they, they killed him um, assassinated him in his driveway in Colorado. The covenant sword in the arm of the Lord, which is just extremely verbose. Mm-hmm. Um, if, <laughs> uh, but that's that's another important group. They were most famous for an armed standoff with the FBI that occurred on April 19th, 1985. Interestingly enough, exactly 10 years prior to the Murrah building. Hmm. And also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but both of those groups that you cited so far, didn't they both do bank robberies? I think that was a common uh, way, yes, that members of these groups financed their operations. Hmm. They would, yeah, and, and I guess they, they, they would uh, excuse it or, or claim that they were robbing um, the banks of the, a term that they use a lot is the Zionist occupied government or Zionist occupation government. So this is a 
Um, the whole Zog thing. The yeah. Zog thing, yes. That you'll see that that's if you start to read about these groups, the, you'll see them mentioning that all the time. All right. Sorry, guys, we had some technical difficulties, but I think we're cooking with oil now. So I think we left off with some of the other groups in the sedition trial. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about the Aryan Nations? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. So that was another one of these uh, verified white supremacist groups and uh, founded uh, by by Richard Butler, who you would be delighted to learn um, was a uh, Lockheed Martin engineer. Uh, so that fun, yeah, you you end up finding quite a few uh, uh, connections to military contractors and things like that when you when you dig into the backgrounds of some of these things. And uh, another great member of the Aryan Nations uh, who. I believe was in the trial as well, Lewis Beam. Um, he is sort of like a legend among white supremacist terrorist groups because he, he kind of was like, he pioneered using the internet as a recruitment tool. He, um, you know, advocated for this like strategy of leaderless resistance, like, uh, you know, doing your terrorism in little decentralized cells so that it's really hard to, you know, stop that. Yeah, like the whole like lone wolf thing, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and like he, uh, yeah, that was a pretty important idea, I think, among like in his writings, and uh, a lot of people took it to heart and uh, you know carried things out under that in that in that style. Um, and then, yeah, uh, eventually it'll turn out that he, you know, he displayed clear foreknowledge of the Oklahoma City bombing, and it's quite possible that that knowledge came to him through at least two connections that knew McVeigh and also <laughs> worked for the CIA. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah wish I, I can mention the names, just Jack Oliphant, and Dave Holloway. Both of those guys were really tight with Lewis Beam and both of them have documented contacts with McVeigh. Um, so, but yeah, we'll talk more about Holloway, especially later on. Um, so yeah, that's Aryan nations. Uh, uh, yeah then so so that we're counting down these groups i guess we're mentioning these groups uh just because that's where the defendants from this trial so there were 14 defendants um the the other groups involved were the ku klux klan national alliance white patriot party and white Aryan resistance so specifically these 14 men um were accused of meeting um at the Aryan World Congress in 1983 <laughs> to begin making plans, which, which, by the way, was held in uh, outside of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, at the behest of Richard Butler, um, to begin making plans for the violent overthrow of the United States government. I'm reminded of a... <laughs> Uh, line from the Thomas Pynchon novel, The Crying of Lot 49, where some right-wing characters <laughs> mention the uh, the left-wing John Birch Society. <laughs> and these would be the types of people who considered the John Birch Society too left-wing for them. Correct. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that would track, yeah. Um, <laughs> specifically, these guys 
were plotting the murder of a federal judge in Arkansas and an FBI agent named Jack Knox. Hmm. So, um, yes, and and these, um, we're going to talk about uh, a group later on in Elohim City that were more white separatists or white isolationists and survivalists. These groups are all, I would say, much more militarized, um, offensive-minded, white supremacist, uh, Nazi ideologies, things of that nature. Um, So that's, that's this group of people, 14 people put up on federal charges for sedition. And the two star witnesses of the trial um, that the government rested their case on, well, one was a man named Fraser Glenn Miller Jr. And the other was a man named James Ellison. Um, And both had already been in legal trouble and took plea deals in exchange for their testimony. And their testimony is kind of what led the case to fall apart because all 14 of these defendants were ultimately acquitted. Hmm. And just a a little bit of background on Glenn Miller. Um, He also is very kind of a spooky background. Um, He was present at the Greensboro massacre in 1978. That is just such a remarkable fact. Right. For my listeners, I'll just jump in here. The Greensboro Massacre was when the Klan basically shot down in the street in broad daylight, like like a bunch of people. They, it was like a marching, like a communist party, probably inadvisably, like tried to do a march in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Klan showed up and just shot a bunch of people. It was just completely insane as you might expect like the cops knew it was going to happen there were probably provocateurs involved it's a whole thing right and they were all they were all acquitted yeah there was an actual COINTELPRO asset like in the yeah in the group of nazis who yeah told the police ahead of time and yeah yeah (laughs) right yeah so i mean that and then he glenn miller um is the one that went uh, in 2014. So near the end of his life. um, So he was an old man at this point. He went on a shooting spree at a Jewish community center in Overland park, Kansas. And I believe he killed two people. Um, And ultimately he died in prison in in May of 2021. So that's like, how old was he when he went on that shooting spree? In his late sixties, early seventies, I believe. That's so weird. But I mean, yeah. Yeah, he was living. He was living under an assumed identity that he had gotten for being an FBI informant. Oh yeah. Oh oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention that fun little nugget. Yes, uh, he was born in 1940, so he would have been 74 years old at the time of the shooting. That's so insane. Yeah, it's just terrible. And then, so that was this. That was the government's one of their two star witnesses. <laughs> that was one of their two star witnesses. And the other star witness was um, this James Ellison character who was a, uh, I don't have a ton on him, but I, I've just read, I haven't actually read the, the trial transcripts or anything, but all of the summaries of the trial that I've read, uh, he lost the jury because he basically asserted he was a new 
King James of Arkansas and he, he lost them with his Christian zealotry and um, he had very bizarre racist um, religious beliefs. Um, and in April of 1988, like I said, all 14 of the defendants on trial were acquitted of the charges of seditious conspiracy. Another lesson connection to the OKC stuff. His, his, uh, his spiritual advisor was, was, uh, was, was Robert Miller, who was the, uh, the founder of Elohim city, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into later, but plays a fundamental role in, in what happened. And Miller was an FBI informant also. Uh, but yeah, so he, he was the spiritual advisor of Ellison, but sorry for introducing names. I... No worries. No, no. Yeah. So already here, you know, you can see there are bits and pieces that are, are involved with the later, Oklahoma City plot. Um, so our thesis about Strassmeyer is in the wake of this, and I, I can't, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to take all the credit for this, the, this thesis that in the wake of the sedition trial, the government might have wanted a more reliable informant slash provocateur slash whatever you want to call it in these white supremacist circles that they might've wanted a more reliable person in the mix because a few weeks after this trial concludes, Andreas Strassmeyer waltzes, uh, waltzes on over from Germany yes. <laughs> to, uh, to begin his little uh, adventure in America. Let me, let me ask you in your opinion, and I know this is a much broader question and maybe we don't have the answer, but like, is it a case where like the informants that they were getting in these movements were all just cranks in the first place? Or was there an element of some of them like going native and becoming like a crank? If that makes sense. I will definitely, I will definitely get to that with regards to Strassmeyer. Let let me, let me say with Strassmeyer, I can't speak for all of them, but with Strassmeyer just off the bat, um, he uh, spoke fluent Hebrew, vacationed in Israel, and had an Israeli girlfriend for a time. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think he was a true believer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think Strassmeyer was picked because he had already had some training in counterintelligence. Yeah. Um, and he had come from a family with some Nazi heritage. His grandfather was the founding member of the Nazi party. Um, But in in the, in the case of Strassmeyer, I think it's, I think he kind of got burned too, but you're, you're right in the, in that the informants that were being used were not always the most reliable people. Like with Fraser Glenn Miller, he seems like he was a true believer in like some like, racist stuff who like got extorted into doing like informing and then with James Ellison he also he just seems like a crank that they extorted into like informing right so like in both cases it's just low quality informants is what I guess was the impetus to bring Strassmeyer over is what you're saying that's that's the the idea yes um Mm. you know and and someone that was not a true believer that you then extort into becoming an informant, but instead finding someone who 
A was an uh, you know was authentically German, um, and B had some already had some intelligence training, and due to his background, you could reliably assume did not necessarily believe in the Nazi ideology or the ideology of white supremacy that he was going to be immersed in. Now, I think it's difficult to tell. It's entirely possible that during his time in the States, he went native in some ways. And I know that um, FBI agent Danny Colson mentioned that as a possibility. Did, did Strassmeyer go native? Um, you know, as, as a, as a theory as to what happened there, but um, I, I don't know. It, I guess it's hard to say. That's the, that's one of the big questions of this case. Yeah, no, for sure. Cause like, <laughs> I would imagine that it would be necessary to pick a guy who could be plausibly a certain amount of racist. And of course the Nazi ties help with that, but then like not so racist as to, I don't know, let the Oklahoma city bombing happen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So let's, let's get into it then. Like, let's talk about his uh, family background. <laughs> so he was born in 1959 in West Germany. Um, son of uh, Gunter Strassmeyer, who was the former chief of staff to the German chancellor, Helmut Kohl. It's like pretty uh, high up. Man. That's pretty high up. Um, yeah. Like I'm trying to imagine Rahm Emanuel's kid being involved in something like this. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> everybody would immediately be like, what? Uh, his uncle was a minister of parliament. Uh, his brother was a Berlin city council member. And like I said, grandson of a founding member of the Nazi party. Um, and that, uh, that they had like a Nazi registration number that was like lower than Hitler's. Like, like, yeah. in there start the start the start like it's crazy to go on that yeah so you know very politically connected family mm-hmm. um he attended military college and received intelligence training at the is it bundeswehr how do you say that word i think that's pretty pretty close <laughs> i you know i'm my family's from germany i should really know this stuff uh it's bundeswehr. as close as we can get <laughs> Bundeswehr Academy in Hanover, um, and he served in the uh, the Panzer Grenadiers, so the equivalent of the U.S. Special Forces. So he had, you know, significant training. Oh, um, I did want to add, like, I recently did an episode on the uh, the RAF, right? And mm-hmm. I had a this really cool guy from Germany, and he was telling me how, like, German special forces, it's such a complicated thing because like, I think at least for a while, their constitution didn't allow it. So they had to like come up with these like weird workarounds to have special forces. And it was like necessarily a pretty small group of people. So like it cements the idea that him being in the equivalent of the German special forces is like extra notable, I guess. And elite, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. something that you're taking from the, the pool chances are if you got into that group you were connected from the start as he clearly clearly is yeah um and he was like they put him i was just just to you you know he he like had a stint uh as like a liaison officer with the british army of the rhine uh and was placed in the welsh guards so like he also had like some international um uh placements i i think it was within germany but you know like 
interfacing with uh, international forces. So I, I don't know. I think that's maybe relevant to the, to the idea that he might have been, you know. He also, right, he, he gave an interview too where he spoke about going on patrol while he was visiting Israel once. Yes. And yeah. then they asked him about that in a follow-up question and he ignored it. Like what kind of <laughs> patrols were you doing in Israel? Like, what is that about? So, right. yeah, clearly, clearly there's something more there too. He in fact did, he didn't deny contact with Mossad and, and there's like <laughs> with, with uh, an Israeli general who is like the architect of the 1982 invasion of Lebanon, this guy, Raphael Eitan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Like, but yeah, pretty, uh, uh, <laughs> It doesn't seem like he was just vacationing there. Yeah, he he was. Yeah, he he uh, was also like he was on patrol on the Green Line, like between Israel. And uh, listeners, if it seems strange to you that a uh, German would be close with the Israeli government, uh, then I would just regrettably inform you that it was in fact uh, very common, and still is. So. Right, right. Like that, that that Bill mentioned, like where he was, he, you know, basically was tasked with trying to like root out moles and then feed them, feed them bullshit, feed them disinformation. Sorry, cursing aloud. Yeah, you're you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, he. So he also did that, but he also like engaged in undercover assignments with the German police, uh, uh, where he was like doing sting operations. Uh, he says that we did a lot of work with drugs, but like, who knows? I'm sure he did. <laughs> so I just thought I would tack that on to the, to the discussion of his like intelligence background because he, yeah, like not only did he have an intelligence background, but he had an undercover infiltration background. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How might that be relevant to his time in America? Well, <laughs> um, so well wait wait sorry bill real quick i wanted to add um in the notes here like there's the note that you guys say he's not a neo-nazi uh i wouldn't strictly disagree but i would maybe say that like the german neo-nazis are not necessarily against working with like the israelis sure sure no i mean yeah I guess not, yeah like he's not a nazi of the type that wouldn't work with israel right 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 i mean i what i guess what i'm i meant by that is, i should probably have clarified that is i should say um there are reasons to question that he was an out and out anti-semite true believer mm-hmm. you know I, I if you are even if I don't know. I don't know how into the weeds we want to get with different Nazi ideologies or whatever, but I imagine there are some within that would just say you can't work with Jewish people in any capacity and others that would say if you're ideologically, you know, if you could find some common ground or use them in some way, then go ahead. Um, The fact that he spoke fluent Hebrew and, you know, visited there and everything, I guess at least makes it questionable or certainly like, yeah, speaking he- fluent Hebrew certainly does raise that threshold of like less likely, but yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. From so there's this book by Ambrose Evans Pritchard called The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, and that has like a long, detailed discussion of Strassmeyer and Carol Howe and stuff. And he actually like interviewed Strassmeyer pretty extensively, and he says, "This is a quote from the author of that book, who's like a you know pretty 
well-regarded investigative journalist, I think, um, he says, I believe that the pretense of being a Nazi had become too painful, both for him and his family. Speaking of Strassmeyer, it was horrible, he said, for his parents to pick up the taggish spiel in Berlin and read that their son was a militant Aryan racist. He wanted to reassure the world that his calling was high. I was willing to believe him. So, like, uh, at least this guy who, like, you know, directly talked to Strassmeyer seems fairly convinced that he, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, probably wasn't a true believer in, uh, in, in this stuff. Which, like, that's such a double bind then, because it's like, okay, well, if he wasn't a true believer, then he was a straight informant or, like, provocateur. So it's like this, like, double game where it's like, okay, well, which was it then? And both <laughs> versions kind of undermine the story, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, he, you know, in the same book, in the same interviews, he you know, comes pretty darn close to explicitly admitting to being, you know, participating in the sting operation. Um, uh, yeah. But we can get into that later. Let's talk about Strassmeyer coming to America. All right. So he arrives in June of 1988. So I guess it's six weeks or so after the, the end of the sedition trial. Um, and this is the story. <laughs> and I laugh every time I read it. Uh, he showed up with some German friends, allegedly to participate in Civil War reenactments. That's so funny. And to, and to begin looking for employment in America. Can you imagine this like freaking crowd wandering around <laughs> trying to like probably provoke people by being like, so you guys hate black people? Like <laughs> group of group of crowds. He and some <laughs> other German friends, and I've never seen I've I've just seen it written that way. I have never gotten any names on who these other German friends were. Yeah. But uh, he showed up with multiple people 
I guess, and allegedly he already had some authentic era uh, uniforms and things. Jeez. Yeah. What did he get those from like the freaking Confederate colony in Brazil? I, right. I mean, who knows? I, this stuff is just crazy. So that that's his story. He shows up in America um, looking to participate in civil war enactments and to begin looking to for employment. So he places a phone call to someone who can help him get employed. <laughs> <laughs> who who helps him get employed? Oh, he called he calls up uh, Vincent Petrusky. Um, P-E-T-R-U-S-K-I-E, Vincent Petrusky, um, whom Strassmeyer later refers to as, quote, an old CIA guy who knew my father. <laughs> so um, I guess that's the next that's the next big name, I guess, that that comes up in the in the Strassmeyer story is this Petrusky character. Now, I, I do think it's worth, like you said, like going through Petrusky's career because it is super telling. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly spooked. Yes, uh, born in 1933, Petrusky was part of the Air Force Special uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigation, um, or from early in his service career through the 70s. Allegedly, this was cover for his actual work for the CIA. He spent time stationed in Berlin, where supposedly he met the Strassmeyer family for the first time. Also, spent time working in Vietnam allegedly as part of the phoenix program for the listeners who might not know the phoenix program that of course was the widespread cia assassination program in vietnam right um and and seems to have churned out uh, graduates that did all kinds of crazy stuff throughout the late 70s 80s and 90s Um, a lot of people are connected to that program in some way shape or form um he was in the a special projects officer, special activities branch, counterintelligence division, working in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s as well. Was that, um, Booty, was that from the Evans Pritchard book too? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, like, I can't even, I can't even imagine what he was getting up to in the CI division in D.C. in the 70s. Like, <laughs> holy shit. I mean, yeah, you can only imagine. Um, and then after that, he was apparently reactivated for sensitive assignments during the Gulf War. After he was in contact with Strassmeyer. So he's still in there, you know, like that I think is notable. Like, you know, and like what is sensitive assignments like? Yeah, right. <laughs> God. Yeah, right. Good Lord. Who knows? There's, there's um, a story Lions would tell, which uh, he's like Strassmeyer's lawyer. He told a story that apparently the Strassmeyer family loved to tell him a story of Petrusky killing a Soviet spy in the 1950s and leaving him hanging in the Reichstag ruins. Uh, uh, just, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a fun, you know, he's a CIA assassin, a literal fucking assassin. It's crazy. Yeah, continue. Sorry. That's nuts. Yes. So <laughs> Petrusky, that's, that's Strassmeyer's phone call for, hey, buddy, help me out. <laughs> <laughs> So Petrusky puts up Strassmeyer and his friends for a short time upon their arrival in America um, and claims that this is the extent of their relationship. I think he's later quoted one place saying like, ah, Strassmeyer, nice kid, kind of, kind of a goof off. Nothing didn't think anything would ever become, you know, anything would ever, uh, you know, 
But, like, probably everyone is a goof-off to Petrusky, like a freaking dead-eyed killer. <laughs> yeah, good point. And he he also claims that, like, he, he, like, denies, like, everything. He claims he didn't even know Strassmeyer or his family before the visit. Um, so he denies mm. that, like, that he had contacts with the Strassmeyer family before. And he says that, like, he met him through uh, one of the German friends that, like, came with Strassmeyer to America, like, uh, his father knew Petrusky and Petrusky claims that's the, where the connection comes in. And he also claims like that. So we're about to get into, well, whatever. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll mention this. He, he basically claims that, yeah, Strassmeyer didn't do anything in America and that any claims about, you know, spookier stuff were things that Petrusky made up in order to like be able to tell Strassmeyer's dad on phone calls when he would uh, ask how, what his son was up to. <laughs> See, like, say what you will, Petruski's thing about, like, I literally didn't know him seems like a more disciplined, like, approach, right? Oh, right. And it's Petruski's, even what we do know about him is, like, you have to kind of cobble together from lots of different resources. Yeah. Uh, There's nothing as ironclad on him as other people. So, like, he's done, I think, for being involved in all this, I think he did probably the most disciplined job, like you said, of keeping his mouth shut about what was going on. Props, Petruski. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just don't see a tradecraft like that anymore, and it's a shame. Uh, you have to respect the craftsmanship. Correct. <laughs> uh, but, hey, I think this next part is something... Uh, Booty, if you uh, you've dug into this more than I have, the the whole um, the matter of purchasing airplanes. Yeah, yeah, it's completely it's hilarious. Yeah, uh, so, so this yeah, there's an attorney that became involved in trying to you know uncover some stuff about the case. Mike Mike Johnston, um, and he like he went to Berlin and interviewed Strassmeyer after um, after he went back to Germany uh, after you know, all this bombing stuff goes down. Um, and he learned that essentially, well, he, he somehow, I don't know how he actually got gained the information, but he, uh, he somehow learned that Strassmeyer had helped um, Petruski attempt to arrange purchases of uh, Boeing 747s from Lufthansa airlines. Um, and like having Strassmeyer's name on these letters was useful because of, all of these like government connections that uh Strassmeyer had um and yeah so Mike Johnston like uh confronted Strassmeyer with this like with this knowledge that uh he and Petruski had worked together to attempt to purchase these airline airliners for a little uh South American what they what what they call the South American like cargo service um and Strassmeyer was like how did you know that so like it definitely that is the is the case that that happened and uh Johnstone also uncovered that it seemed like probably they were uh attempting to purchase these these Boeing 747s for a company called Evergreen uh which is a uh yeah a CIA front um it's a CIA cut out uh that like purchased other cia cutouts other like cia airlines like uh one named intermountain aviation um and uh was you know participating in uh mysterious uh you know shipments back and forth to uh places like 
Nicaragua and El Salvador. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that Germans are interested in buying airplanes to go to like Latin America? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't track with anything else I know. <laughs> I, I, I sure hope there aren't any Germans involved in the truck trade. <laughs> yeah, wonder what was going on in the 80s in Latin America, but we'll never know. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of anything that this might no. be connected. No, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, so we based so so yeah so Strassmeyer uh yeah was uh attempting to help arrange aircraft purchases for a CIA cutout company with Anthony Vincent Petrusky III who was the first person to host it in the United States when he came uh, immediately after the end of the sedition trial. Uh, so that's cool. Fun. Oh, we didn't mention the DAA. Yet, we, or is that something that comes later? Uh, they also like supposedly Petrusky uh, was in line to head up a DAA project it, upon George Bush's election to the presidency. Um, and, Petrusky would have been running essentially an off-the-books uh, U.S.-Mexico border uh, drug interdiction program. And uh, Strassmeyer claims that he was, you know, lined up to help Petrusky out with that as well. Um, and I think that's interesting because, like, you know, there's a lot of documentation of the CIA, like, infiltrating the DEA and using it for various things. And uh yeah, like when they say drug interdiction program, that's off the books. I think you can read it as <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're going to interdict the drug. They're going to interdict the drug. There's no doubt. Uh, but yeah, not. Oh, they're going to they're going to do the hell yeah. out of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, uh, the like. I was the other day just reading like, yeah, Bush, when he did. So eventually that this didn't go through because Petrusky supposedly, according to like interviews that uh, I think either Strassmeyer or Petrusky gave to the uh, Gumbel and Charles, the people that wrote the first book that Bill read on this. Um, uh, by the way, Charles might also be CIA, but we can we don't have to go into that. But um, uh, uh, so this this fell through Petrusky didn't get this job as a DEA guy because apparently like he was seen as kind of like politically unpalatable because of his connections to to Phoenix to the to the yeah the bureaucratic slaughter apparatus that the CIA was running in Vietnam um so yeah that's another like claim they've made it may not be completely true that that was what uh Strassmeyer was intending uh to do but like you know they at least admit that he was trying to come over here and work undercover uh which seems like a big admission uh regardless of whether it's the full truth of what was actually going on there right and specifically undercover with the DEA yeah that was one yeah because yeah. uh, I think we'll get to this too but they found applications and stuff for employment with the DEA in his car once um <laughs> So if, if all that isn't enough, yes, so, yeah. so that's, that's all, I mean, that's a lot already. Um, but then kind of putting aside the, the Petrusky stuff for a bit, um, there's the, the question of his visa. Um, yeah. He made five total visits, uh, Strassmeyer did, from June of 88 through May of 1991. Um, he was allowed into the country on an open-ended multiple entry visa. And then he overstayed his final visit. So he was um, in the country illegally after, after uh, May of 1991 or, or I guess later in 1991, but 
Listen, Bill, no human is illegal. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's, it's, yeah. But the, the fact that he had all of these different, you know, interactions with law enforcement and it was never a problem for him is just another example of, of why, uh, I guess something spooky going on with him. Yeah. Anyone Um, who's ever like been a normal person who has visa problems knows that that is not exactly normal to just overstay your visa and not have any problems from it. Right. Right. So he received a, that visa that he received is not normal for a tourist. And then I know uh, Booty had kind of dug into the A and O designations yeah it's as well it's insane it's so bizarre like so he yeah he has this a and this o on his visa from the start so like from the first first visit he has a and o on on this and so what does that mean well during during uh during mcveigh's trial um the government actually just straight up lied about it like so well, so first of all, actually, like so he so the the A and O designations on his visa are visible in his immigration records uh, until like soon after the bombing. Uh, at at which point they were actually erased from his records, like printouts from before and after the bombing, like have the A O and they don't have the A O. So interesting. Explicitly, they just took they took it off. Uh, but then during McVeigh's trial, um, they claimed that the A meant that the visa had been admitted. Like the guy had been admitted and the O meant overstay. That's transparently, obviously a lie because he had the A and the O from the start. He couldn't have been an overstay when he hadn't come to the United States yet. Uh, so that, so like, it's, it's like very clearly a lie. And if you actually just go look, if you just go like look in the codes, you know, you can find this, you can just Google it. You can just go find the, what the visa codes mean. And, uh, the A means essentially that it's like a diplomatic visa. And the O essentially means that given for immigrants of extraordinary ability, whatever that means. So they lied about what it meant during a trial, erased it from his official records. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it pretty much proves that he was, you know, here on official business, like government official business, like from the start. You look up the code and it just says like crazy white boy. <laughs> No, like, I love when, like, higher-up government agencies make lower agencies just, like, look like absolute fools like that. Like, just straight lying. <laughs> right, yeah. Someone's holding a gun to the head of the immigration officer while they, like, go in there and erase that. Like, yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, okay. Or, or like, you know, you're a CIA officer that has infiltrated mm-hmm. some local... Like you go into the CIA thinking you're going to have this exciting career and they're like, nah, you're working the, you're, you're working the, the visa desk in Arkansas. Yeah. Have you're, fun. You say that bill, right? And I know, you know, but like, they're actually like, I could list off a half dozen different spies who did actually work like, and their cover was like <laughs> doing like visas and shit. Yeah. Right. Right. That's- yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but it's crazy. Uh, it clearly happened here. Because that all of that is just um, so bizarre, and like again, if you, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're you're sympathetic to the idea that this whole thing was 
a conspiracy. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're a little bit skeptical, like you're somehow undecided. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of these, all of these errors are falling in a certain direction here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Quote unquote errors are falling in a certain direction to let him into the country, let him stay in the country and let him keep working. So like, why? Like for what? You know, and piles it, up. it piles up. Right. Right. So I started this sketch too. Like, be clear. Like I didn't, when I started looking into this, I was like, yeah, I mean, maybe, but no, I'm, it's, it's very obvious. Uh, no, but, yeah. Like I remember when I first got into, for me, it was the JFK thing. And like, I didn't enter with any preconceived notions of who was responsible. <laughs> and then over time, it just became blindingly clear over and over again, you know, where the evidence actually pointed. I'm guessing, was that like it for you guys? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, you know, the, the, the people that like to chalk those things up to human error. Um, again, if you, if all the errors are enabling this one thing to happen over and over again, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume there's something making them fall that way. And so. I really like, I think Boltzmann, you had a thread or, you know, I was just looking over a bunch of them, but like you were pointing out how many spies keep pointing to the Arab angle of the Oklahoma City bombing when none of the evidence actually points at that. Yeah. Not much, I should say. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just like so interesting that like the evidence falls this way. All the spooks are pointing over there <laughs> when the evidence is pointing at the spooks. Right. Yeah, you can literally like find like, I don't know how many I have compiled, maybe 10 of like just different CIA like guys that endorse the idea that the bombing was like Iraqi intelligence, uh, yeah. which, uh, yeah, they largely base on uh, the work of this woman named Jaina Davis, who uh, Richard Booth um, has like really like, so she wrote a, she wrote a book about all of this. Um, I think the third terrorist, what it's called. And she essentially like anonymizes all the names in the book, like of all the, like all of the trial things she cites, all the witnesses she cites. And so it makes it very hard to dig into like find the documents that she's citing. And like, you know, you're on good footing when you have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> And and so, but Booth Booth is crazy, and he, he like was like, I'm just love gonna, him. Gonna love figure him. Out. Yeah, no, I say he's crazy. Yeah, I say that in the most uh, loving way possible, channeling the powers of autism for good. Literally <laughs> correct. That's what he said. I, I say that that's, also that's, with that's, respect, like he's the best. That's what he says he's doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he, he was like, I'm going to figure it out. I'm just going to find out who she was talking about and then go check the documents and see what, like, you know, what it says. And like, he found multiple cases where she'll like cite someone as saying, oh yeah, I saw this one Arab guy with Tim McVeigh, like three days before the bombing. And then like, he'll go and find like the testimony of the person that she, whose name she hid, uh, that she claims was saying that. And it's, it'll just say the opposite. It'll be like, yeah, uh, I don't actually think, uh, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure I, I, I don't, I, I can't confirm that. And then she'll like, you know, twist, twist it to, <laughs> to agree right. with this, with this Iraqi narrative. Um, and yeah, uh, if you look into like some of the things that the CIA was up to around this time in, in Iraq, uh, 
you start to kind of wonder whether maybe they did intend to do this bombing and then blame it on Iraq as pretext for further actions because uh, they uh, were in... Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that they were planning a terrorist attack that they would blame on Iraq as a pretext for a war with Iraq? Believe it or not. (laughs) We're out there. there. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. That sounds a little too out there for me. And it was, you know, it, it could have been, yeah. I mean, even if, even if they didn't, I mean, they could have just been cravenly using it as a political talking point to try to do it. Picking up, picking a bad person, like a bad actor and just. Right. On them. Yeah. But, but, you know, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it certainly seems like there was a hell of a lot more going on there. So, yeah, I mean. Absolutely. Gosh, yeah, it's it's just crazy. Um, so that's the whole the visa thing. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, From there, yeah, where does Strassmeyer go? So, in well, I it's unclear, I guess, or I guess we still need to nail down exactly when he started training with this group, but. His ne- the next place that he really pops up is with a group called the Texas Light Infantry. I was just saying that I think that the 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 time that Strassmeyer is like, you know, at least officially stated in the news articles to have been training with Texas Light Infantry was 1989 to 1990. Um, uh, and then, but it, it it seems like that is pretty well like probably. Um, kind of a lie like because it's information coming from um a guy who has a very strong uh incentive to play down his sustained contacts with strassmeyer as we'll go into uh in a bit but yeah um, right but he he certainly was it's unclear i guess you could say what what exactly the timing or how often but he was certainly involved with a group because we have different witnesses placing Strassmeyer with a group called the Texas Light Infantry, um, which was an organization that was founded by, um, was it both Holloway and Lyons that were involved in the founding of that group, or was it just Holloway? It's both, yeah, it was both of them, yeah. Oh, right. So these two guys, to enter a couple of other new names to the conversation, Dave Holloway. Um, who is very important later on, um, also has CIA connections. Holloway was a pilot, a CIA pilot, uh, for at least a couple of years, probably longer. Um, and right. And Kirk Lyons, who was a, uh, an attorney, um, who worked for an organization called called the Cause Foundation, which was an avowedly um, white supremacist, racist uh, legal operation that would represent um, racists, like, basically. Nazi uh, legal aid. Nazi legal aid, right. Um, so this overlaps with probably the four running uh, operations of PatCon. So when he ends up with the TLI, it's it's right in the thick of when PatCon stuff was getting started or going on. Now, what is PatCon? 
PatCon is an FBI operation that is short for Patriot Conspiracy. I shortened that to PatCon. And it was um, an operation to infiltrate and ultimately they claimed prosecute um, white supremacist, white separatist, survivalist, anti-government um, groups and individuals. Uh, Listen, Bill, it's called a diversity of tactics, okay? We have <laughs> to fight white supremacy in our own way. Lift where you stand. Things of this nature. Right. Things of this nature, yes. <laughs> so he, the, the Strathmire is involved with the TLI during this time frame. Um, but he screws up. Um, he is suspected by members of the TLI of being an informant. Um, so they follow him one night. This is, I believe, is in July of 1991. They follow him one night and they observe him entering a government building using a keypad access panel, which is probably a sign that your friend Andy the German is not exactly on the up and up. Now, to be fair, they could be lying, right? They could be lying, but they, oh, there's a this actually there's a there's a couple guys that tell the same exact story about him. <laughs> like I'm inclined to believe it, but like yeah, right. devil's advocate and all. Right, yeah, no, they could be lying absolutely, but it kind of tracks. Like one of the guys that tells the story, like claims that. I mean, Holloway, Holloway tells the story and he claims that like Strassmeyer's, uh, you know, that essentially that Strassmeyer ruined his life or whatever, like, uh, in, in a couple different interviews, I think once he gives it anonymously and then later on in a different like article, he says it, you know, with, with putting his, his own name on it, Dave Holloway. But the weird thing is like, they, that claim that Strassmeyer, you know, caused him issues doesn't really like line up with how like tightly bound they remained after this. Um, uh, So that's why I've I've never, like, I'm not sure what to make of this story because like, but further, we also like, it seems like after this, it's possible that Strassmeyer has actually seen training with, um, with TLI again, um, even after this, this story that they tell. And so I, I've wondered whether it was like a thing to just like cover up, um, you know, his continued uh, association with this group. Um, and I'd also note this group, Texas Light Infantry. So first of all, yeah, like like Bill pointed out, co-founded by Dave Holloway, who is himself a CIA employee, a, a pilot for, for two to five years, depending on which of his own claims you take at face value. But, uh, and it's one of the targets of PACCON. In addition to, so another another target of PATCON was a group called Civilian Material Assistance CMA, and CMA was like deeply embedded in Iran Contra and uh, was received direct like CIA support. Like members of it were receiving CIA funding and stuff. They were helping uh, do the do like essentially like private transport of weapons down to Nicaragua. But TLI shared leadership with CMA. Um, and further TLI is like recorded in PATCON documents, like documents from the informants that were within the group, uh, like TLI received weapons shipments from El Salvador and 
had plans to send weapons back to El Salvador. And so that's interesting given the fact that it's founded by a pilot for the CIA uh, and is also tightly bound with a group that is known to have been involved in, you know, weapon shipments for Iran-Contra. So interesting. So like maybe they were saying it because they might've known Strassmeyer might be exposed and they were trying to keep their organization like legitimate or like appearing something like that, maybe. Right. Almost like they, they knew Strassmeyer at the end of whatever it was, was going to be, you know, helicoptered back to Germany or, you know, extracted back to Germany and would be free of the ramifications of all of this. So they exactly. kind of put different things on him that they wanted to when it was convenient. Right. That's that. Yeah, I wonder that not, to, I'm not discounting the story either. Cause I think it is possible the story is true, but I just like, I think that's all useful context for evaluating it. For sure. Right. Um, Holloway also had, lived with Strassmeyer intermittently um, and gave him <laughs> a job at his quote unquote computer company. He was giving him $2,000 a month, a CIA <laughs> Andy Strassmeyer, $2,000 a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, and then the, the, so keep in mind, um, so either way, no, no matter the details of it exactly, it's pretty clear that his time with the Texas Light Infantry is had to come to an end, um, either because he was made or, or for some reason he, it had to come to an end. So Lyons, um, Kirk Lyons, the attorney, um, you know, great guy, has a lot of friends. Not a great, not a great guy. I take it back. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, friendly guy has a lot of contacts around the country. He finds Strassmeyer, um, Elohim City, uh, which is in Arkansas, the white separatist compound, as kind of a long-term landing spot um, because you know basically things in Texas had gotten too hot for him. Um, so we know that he probably was up there in Arkansas or closer to Arkansas uh, by 1992. And we know that because of the infamous traffic stop by the uh, Oklahoma Highway Patrol, which I think... The incorruptible Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Correct. Which, uh, Booty, do you want to take this one? Because I I really enjoyed your thread on this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Uh, sure, I can I can, can talk a little bit about it because yeah, I mean uh, it's delightful. Um, he he, yeah, they. It was was it that Strassmeyer was caught in the roadblock? I for some reason was thinking that this was um, he had let someone borrow his car and then the car got towed. But I maybe I, I maybe no, I'm I, I'm pretty sure it was Strassmeyer, but he gave false documents. Okay, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and they, he said it was his American friend or something. And, okay. And they impounded the car. Yeah, right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so they impound the vehicle, and uh, inside uh, there's like a briefcase. Uh, and <laughs> so in the briefcase, there are applications from Strassmeyer to work both at the DEA and at the INS, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Services. Is that what that stands for? Yes. And while he's in the country overstaying his visa. He's working for INS. 
totally after he's yeah uh after after the visas up that's um so they they find that yeah uh not only that um they also found i believe um a book in the briefcase called and this is again from that evans pritchard book um they found a book in the briefcase called the terrorist handbook oh hells yeah yeah great yeah and if you look in the terrorist handbook it literally has um you know instructions for making uh info bombs uh uh and info bomb is you know the the like uh standard uh story for what the truck bomb what info being ammonium nitrate fuel oil right um uh you know high explosive fertilizers essentially um and so yeah in addition to these applications to work with the government we also have uh, a book uh that describes how to create the bomb that was supposedly used to blow up the Murrah federal building okay so uh cool cool Sorry, I, I just want to mention. So the reason the car was impounded, it was improperly registered in the state of Oklahoma. So it's just this ticky tack thing. But they had set up the Oklahoma Highway Patrol had set up uh, a task force to take cars in that were improperly registered, and th- and yeah, that was the kind of the impetus for all this. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's good. Good. Uh, good to know. Good to good to have out there. Um, yeah. Then you know cars impounded um suddenly (laughs) suddenly the guy that that towed it in starts getting like (laughs) starts getting calls um from from quote unquote a military man in the carolinas from a district officer at the highway patrol and from the state department and if i i feel i think there was also possibly from the oklahoma governor's office maybe i'm maybe maybe i'm wrong about that (laughs) getting calls from a lot of different groups all of them being like give the car back give the car back give the car back you have to you can't this this isn't something that like you can't keep this car you can't keep these documents you need to just give them back and slide this under the like just just slide under the bed don't don't mention it again don't charge them yeah no no trouble trouble for this he needs to we can go real real quick um the, a military man in the Carolinas makes me think of what, like Fort Bragg, maybe Fort Bragg or or, or Nags Head. Yeah, uh, it, that's all. This is this is a quote from Kenny Pence, who is just a tow truck guy uh, <laughs> in Oklahoma, who had recounted this, I believe, to JD Cash. Yeah, I think that's right. So he, you know, basically, like I don't know the cops told me to impound this car i picked it up and then i start getting all these phone calls like what the hell's going on you know um and i love it when like a totally just normal person has a a moment in these stories because it's i I can't imagine what he was thinking like okay who the hell whose car is this like what what do i have in my lot you know what i mean you gotta start to wonder like you just impound a car and then all of a sudden the state department is calling you and it's like this really shows how much juice Strassmeyer has because this it's not just like the cops let him go. It's like all these different people calling like that's freaking nuts. Right. Right. No, I mean, the cops actually inconvenienced him. Yeah. I mean, like, the, like at certain at this point, you know, he was hung up by the system and then uh, the cavalry comes in to, to save him. Yeah. And again, the next thing that happens to you know so he didn't have to he didn't have a driver's license before this either which is probably why he gave his friend's license or whatever well listen bill under 
naval law, you don't need to have a driver's license <laughs> because of, uh, I can't do the whole thing, whatever. <laughs> well, he got one. He got a social security number and a driver's license issued by the state of Tennessee. What? Right after this. And I think that, I think they chose Tennessee because um, it's the easiest place to get a license. Maybe back then. I think now it's the state of Washington. No, sorry, I should probably cut that. <laughs> I all I know is, and this is probably yeah. bad. This is probably bad opsec, but I'll tell the story anyway. When I was in college, I lived with a guy from Memphis, hmm. and in order to get a fake ID, all <laughs> he all he had to do was write a letter to the the office whatever some office in tennessee and they would send him one in the mail they would send you a new holy cow. driver's license in the mail so as he told it like the fake id market in tennessee was like totally flooded they were just everywhere because you could just yeah i can't imagine that's still the case but, I, I mean i can't imagine either but i i yeah, know yeah. this is true because i use that fake id for a while oh, sick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so I, as soon as i saw this tennessee thing i just thought oh, of course it was tennessee yeah that that does legitimately make sense um let's uh also i just wanted to throw one last thing about the like the calls that the pence guy got because i pulled up the i just pulled up the article again and uh he pence apparently the the pence guy being the tow the tow truck guy um mm-hmm. uh he, he says that like <laughs> the calls that he got people were like throwing around the words diplomatic immunity. Like that was like <laughs> those words were used like when he was receiving calls from the U S state department and a military base in North Carolina. Uh, and yeah, I think the Fort Bragg mentioned there pretty interesting because that's where, you know, McVeigh supposedly dropped out of, uh, of, of, uh, mm. of so that's a notable thing to maybe make that connection. I did want to ask, because when you're talking about his visa and it, you mentioned the diplomatic mm-hmm. thing on like one of the uh, initials, right? Like, so what, what did he actually have some sort of diplomatic immunity or do you think maybe they were saying that or like, what's the angle on the diplomatic part? Not that I'm not sure about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it like, I think that must just come with, you know, specific privileges with the way the visa functions. Um, but I can't say that I have uh, dug into like, yeah, what privileges that would grant you. Um, whether, and even whether he did or did not, the way he behaved and as far as the, the, the consequences yeah. that he did not face for what he was doing, yeah. make it pretty clear that he pretty much had it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or had something equivalent to it, right. I mean, he got he yeah. he got a social security number. That's the thing that's cr- like one of the craziest things to me. Yeah, it's- while he was in the country, again, I keep repeating this, but I, it just blows my mind. He's in the country illegally, and he gets a social security number and a driver's license. Like, yeah, that stuff is just wild to me. But yeah, it seems like that would take some diplomatic immunity, and uh, and we're gonna go into further like some of the yeah like other things that certainly <laughs> give that impression as well. I think uh, like I. I think he had something approximating diplomatic immunity, even if he didn't have literal diplomatic immunity, whatever. Yeah. So he ends up at Elohim city um, and is made head of security. 
there. So Elohim, right off the bat, right off the bat. Well, I think it was clear he had the training for it or whatever. Um, he clearly was um, familiar with lots of different kinds of weapons. So he upgraded the available weaponry at the compound um, and began building a series of concrete bunkers and fortifications. Let me, let me um, ask you, are we talking tunnels? <laughs> are we, are we uh, talking tunnels here? I don't know if we're talking tunnels or if we're talking... Germans just, love to have compounds with tunnels. They do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read about the t- uh, any tunnels, but like he was hauling a ton of concrete in there. And okay. I, so it's certainly possible. Um, and different fortifications. Um, and some of this... And he's like training too like while he's doing this like he's running like training camps like paramilitary like combat type stuff like where people are coming from like you know across the u.s to train their you know like for like war i guess essentially and if if there's one thing i know from running my show it's that everyone who received that training never went on to do anything notable and there's no reason to track any of them. Listen, I hate to counter, uh, counter you immediately, but uh, do you remember those groups we mentioned in the first part of the show? Uh, those fellow travelers uh, in this circle of um, white supremacy and white separatism would basically use Elohim city as a hideout. Um, and I so Millar and again all of these people are racists but Millar's ideology as far as I can read it is they just want to be out in the sticks left to their own devices and the reason for that is because they are racist and they have this Christian end times thing but Millar was more of a leave us alone out here in the woods kind of a guy um However, he was still an FBI informant, so that seems a little bit strange. It's it's respectable when you're like doing Ruby Ridge, not respectable when you're running a paramilitary training camp. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So but but he I apparently became a little bit um peeved. And again, some of this stuff does seem inconsistent because like I said, he was allowing these different um bank robbers um like like we had mentioned the order um and these offshoot groups from those uh different groups that we mentioned in the first part of the show um this this gang of people called the midwest bank robbers probably spent time wait that was the name of the group that was yeah it was the aryan republic (laughs) the aryan republican army was referred to in the press as the midwest bank robbers which is which is which is probably a like it would, which is a, such a bland name for what they were doing. They robbed a ton of banks yeah. um, all over the Midwest, obviously, but they members of that group were, were using it as kind of a safe Haven hideout too. Um, right. Right. McVeigh might've been running in that circle too. Probably was running in that circle of guys too. Interesting. So at the same time that Millar is, you know, he, he's getting, apparently he says he became upset with Strassmeyer because they were doing illegal weapons modifications and sales. Oh, you're going to get the ATF on your ass for that. Correct. <laughs> oh, it's funny you mentioned the ATF. 
Uh, <laughs> because one of their undercover informants ends up at Elohim City shortly thereafter. Um, but so Millar's, what well, I guess my point is, it's complicated because Millar, the the leader of Elohim City, is saying, I don't want any undue attention. But of course, the bank robbers can hide out here and welcome Mr. Strassmeyer and run our security and sell guns. It's fine. Like, I don't know. It's It seems very complicated. It seems like he was kind of gathering almost a hub uh, for this kind of activity in the central United States during this time. And that's where, and that's where Strassmeyer ends up, of course. Um, and that's where he had some contact with Timothy McVeigh. Let me ask, and I know we're about to talk about this, but to the best of the official evidence, uh, they didn't actually meet at Elohim City. Is that right? They met, or I'm like I'm asking, like, or did, does that make sense? Allegedly, they, yeah, I, I don't think according to the official story, McVeigh was ever at Elohim City, but we have a lot of secondhand information okay. suggesting that he almost yep. certainly was according yep. to Strassmeyer, um he met mcveigh at a, in a chance meeting in a gun show in tulsa oklahoma 
in April of 93, so about two years before the bombing. Um, and it was a fleeting interaction, and um, they didn't really have much interaction after that. But it's that that's almost certainly a lie. Um, he probably met him yeah. well before and was in contact with him well after. Yeah. Yeah. And he even denied, he denied initially ever having met McVeigh before, even though, like, he, uh, you know, had had his military fatigue yes his his battle dress uniforms uh yeah strassmeyer owned them he had them strassmeyer owned mcveigh's military uniform yes yeah uh yeah (laughs) reportedly he bought during this this fleeting interaction at the at the gun show i think it was that mcveigh was um was at the table uh at the gun show of uh Oh yeah, this is fun. So yeah, the the table that McVeigh was at, uh, he was at the table of a man named Roger Moore, who is, uh, is a CIA asset. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, the table where supposedly Strassmeyer and McVeigh first met was, uh, you know, the place where a CIA asset was selling uh, various uh, bootleg pornography and ammunition <laughs> uh, at a, I believe, at a Soldier of Fortune gun show. And now Soldier of Fortune is a magazine that was founded by a Green Beret with extensive CIA connections. Soldier of Fortune is also yeah. uh, the first place to interview Strassmeyer. Um, and, and the man that interviewed Strassmeyer, Richard Shero, for Soldier of Fortune, uh, was himself CIA. And in that, in that interview, uh, Strassmeyer denies having met McVeigh. But then, yeah, later, later on, it comes that he eventually, eventually he admits to the, he and McVeigh both admit to this contact at this um at this uh at this gun show but that's the only interesting also not like what kind of bootleg pornography are we talking like was there <laughs> like are we talking just pirated or what is that i really want to know like i've wondered that like what are we yeah is it, <laughs> it just like normal bootleg pornography or are we getting is it is it like weird shit is it like what's what's going on here i mean there was a lot of south african porn from what I heard, so they'd probably be into that. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got my marching orders before the next time we talk, I guess. I'll try to find <laughs> out. Uh, no. <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, uh, more, and we could do an entire episode on more. And perhaps we will. And perhaps we will. Uh, but he, yes, um, the fact that it was at Moore's booth and McVeigh had traveled extensively in the gunshow circuit uh, with Moore and with selling more stuff um, is part of this whole story too with McVeigh. Yeah. But as far, as far as McVeigh with Strassmeyer, we have um, evidence that they had met prior to 1993. Um, John Matthews, who is an undercover PACCON asset, reported seeing them together at TLI training way back in 1991. Interesting. On that date, that date is unclear uh, because uh, that is what is said in, yeah, this certain, this like Newsweek article that got added. Um, that, that is what they say. But then apparently uh, Booth was saying that in, in that Wendy has said that this meeting probably took place in 1994. Um it's unclear. Yeah. Just to like, I think the 1991 date is more consistent with like when Strassmeyer is supposed to have been in TLI. Uh, but, uh, 
yeah, I'm just, I just want to throw that out there that maybe the 1991 date is off and it's not entirely clear what, uh, we we do have a second mention of a previous, um, which was this area nations member named BJ Farrington who went on the record with JD cash, um, who did, uh, we keep, I keep, I mentioned his name a few times. JD cash did a lot of the best early journalism on the Oklahoma city bombing on the real Mm -hmm. story, the Oklahoma city bombing. If anyone is interested, um, you can find JD cash's articles too at the libertarian Institute. Richard has compiled them all. Um, he, this, this area nations member states he met Strassmeyer in early 1992 in Hayden Lake, Idaho, um, with McVeigh as well. So we have a, a couple of different people saying that, that their connection went further back than 1993. Sounds a little bit like they were friends. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like they were friends. Um, and to, to like, and going back to the, seeing them together at TLI training, just want to emphasize that that would imply that Strassmeyer and McVeigh were together at a training, a paramilitary like training camp founded by a CIA pilot. Uh, And (laughs) not only that, but they were, according to Matthews, they were, they were like working together, training others how to, uh, on how to, um, modify flare guns into like bootleg uh, grenade launchers. Um, And that technique was supposedly pioneered by, again, by the CIA asset, Roger Moore. So you've got, you've got (laughs) Strassmeyer and McVeigh together at a CIA pilot founded paramilitary training camp, teaching the terrorists there how to make grenade launchers with a technique that another CIA asset, taught big vet so just uh yeah <laughs> just want to make all of that uh i think that's pretty notable <laughs> right oh, holloway the guy i forgot we, we didn't make this connection i think we should make it the holloway the what the, the cia pilot that co-founded tli um when i say he's a cia pilot uh what i mean is that he worked for one of these uh like contractors that the cia used and uh you can actually just go look at his LinkedIn. <laughs> he just like lists it on there uh, at the, it's his, for the first job listed on his LinkedIn. He's also a green beret to be clear. Uh, uh, but then, yeah. Also, I will, I will say for the listener's sake, when you look at people who are alive and you look at their LinkedIn's, be sure to do it in incognito mode because I <laughs> idiot that I am have clicked on more than a few a LinkedIn profiles on my personal real LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> and just, just like started sweating. Like, oh shit. Yeah. Oh, wow. right. I yeah. good point. I actually literally did that too. Now that I think about it, I looked at Holloway. I've looked at Holloway's thing like a hundred times. Oh no. Oh no. I'm so I'm gonna die. Uh but we're fucked, but listener, don't be like us. <laughs> Do better. Don't be like us. Don't <laughs> terrible. Um that. So on the LinkedIn, he lists his first job uh, as five years uh, with Intermountain Aviation SA. And it's strange, though, because if you look at the dates that Holloway says he was working for Intermountain Aviation, and then you go look at the dates that Intermountain Aviation existed, uh, it's not consistent. Um, like the, the company before those dates had been folded into another CIA proprietary 
And which CIA pr- proprietary was that? Drumroll, it was Evergreen, which is the group that, that's the company that supposedly Strassmeyer was helping Petrusky purchase planes for. So that I think is really notable that Holloway, and I believe he said that he worked there until 1988, uh, which happens to be the year that Strassmeyer uh, arrived in the United States. So, so you have a CIA pilot that probably worked for Evergreen. And uh, yeah, you also have documentation that uh, Strassmeyer was helping uh, get things for Evergreen. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's just another connection between Holloway and Strassmeyer and TLI and all these things. It's annoyingly uh, hard to explain web. So sorry if I'm not being clear. No, I think you're doing a great job. It's a real uh, den of vipers, if you will. And now he and now he works at NASA. And now he works at fucking NASA. No, do not think about that too much. <laughs> nope, I won't. Um, gosh, yeah, that that's crazy. I mean, all of that is. is we'll, we'll get back to the NASA thing in a little we'll get bit. Back I'm to sure. That. But, yeah. Um, as, yeah. As far as. Off, this, uh, off of the Strassmeyer McVeigh connections, I just wanted to like provide that. Like, I, I feel mm-hmm. like the TLI training thing is pretty notable, and the Evergreen connection is also notable. But uh, uh, um, McVeigh, one of the pieces of evidence connecting him, I guess, most strongly to Elohim City, is that he was issued a speeding ticket there in October of 1993 on a rural road about five miles away from the commune. And it's the, I guess it's the kind of thing where the only reason you'd be driving where he was is if you were coming to or going away from the, the compound. So counterpoint, he was just doing like a 1980s night drive. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Uh, I mean, that's what the Wikipedia article says anyway, that there's no, there's no connection ever proven between McVeigh and Elohim City other than this. So, um, Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks for clearing that up. Always, always helping. Um, <laughs> according to Robert Millar, uh, the, the founder of Elohim City, Strassmeyer was likely the intended recipient of a phone call placed to Elohim City on April 5th, 1995, just two weeks before the bombing. Um, it was from a phone card under the alias Daryl Bridges that McVeigh and Nichols shared. But either way, somebody using that phone card called Elohim City two weeks before the bombing. Yeah. Probably the last piece of information. Interesting. Well, am I correct that on that call, like whoever received it said that, I think they, I think said they, that McVeigh said, tell Andy I'm coming or something. Yeah, tell Andy I'm coming to see him. Yep. Yeah, uh, pretty <laughs> pretty direct. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, you know, more than a little bit of evidence to suggest that Strassmeyer and McVeigh were closer than, um, than, than either really would admit to later on. Yeah. And Carol Howe says that she saw them together. Doesn't she say that McVeigh came and did training with Andy at Elohim City? Am I am I correct about? It? I think she may have like not initially said that, but said it later. Is that right? That I don't know. That will have to, I'll have to dig into that. If she had said that, I think I thought I would have remembered it, but she might have said that. Now, for the listeners, who is this lady we're talking about? Okay, so yeah. 
Carol Howe um, was an ATF informant that was embedded at Elohim City. Um, she was posing as a neo-Nazi. Question. is So is she an informant in the sense, like, are we talking like she's an ATF officer or someone they recruited to work like as an informant? I believe she was recruited to, to work as an informant, yes. Gotcha. And I think she wow. dated the guy and he like abused her or something like, and that like that uh, played into her decision to do that. Something along those lines. Um, yep. But she had, she had a swastika tattoo, the whole nine yards. Um, she was. Where, where was the tattoo? On her upper arm. Interesting. I believe. Pretty prominent. Yeah. Pretty, um, pretty prominent. Yeah. So she did. I can now like, I just went and found the, the article I was thinking of. Uh, it's a, it's a JD cash article and I'll just quote it. Carol Howe has revealed that Tim McVeigh used to visit Elohim City using the alias of Tim Tuttle. He would frequent the house of Strassmeyer, who had an extraordinary influence over him. So, yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. She did say that. Okay. Um, oh, that's crazy. And so, like, there's, like, it's not like she was, like, discredited, right? I mean, that's a pretty good source, right? Right. No, she, oh, God, it's terrible. They they burned her hard yeah. after yeah after all of this hit the fan. Um, But she was uh, by all accounts, if you read the contemporary reports, she was a good informant and was giving regular information that checked out. And Mm -hmm. one of her reports suggested quote, Strassmeyer freely talks about direct action against the federal government. And that members of the Elohim City community had specifically scouted the Murrah building in the months leading up to the blast. To the listeners, let that be a lesson to you. Don't work as an informant, even if it's against <laughs> Nazis, because they will burn you if it if they need to. If it's inconvenient, yes. They later tried to prosecute her for a bomb. Like like they tried to like put her in jail for a fabricated bomb charges, essentially. Like they really tried to burn her. Like it was uh Jeez. After burning her undercover identity and everything, um, Howe's ATF contact, actually Angela Finley, wrote a memo in November 1994 warning of bombings after debriefing her undercover operative, who was Howe. Um, and then I'm going to quote this. I mean, this is probably one of the craziest things I've read yeah. about in this in this whole thing. So I'm going to read, this is from a McCurtain Daily Gazette piece published in July of 1997. Again, the McCurtain Daily Gazette was where J.D. Cash worked um, and did a lot of great investigative reporting on this strain of um, investigation into the bombing. So this is a quote. In the weeks leading, in the weeks before the Oklahoma City bombing, BATF agent Angela Finley had planned to raid the compound and arrest its security advisor, Andreas Carl Strassmeyer. Strassmeyer was suspected by Finley of converting semi-automatic weapons to machine guns, as well as plotting with other Elohim City residents and visitors to, bu- to bomb federal installations. Howe had told Finley that Strassmeyer was the ringleader of the plot to bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and that Elohim City leader Millar who was a paid federal informant, was preaching twice a day to his flock that the group had to act by April 19, 1995, or they would end up like the Branch Davidians. 
The planned arrest of Strassmeyer was scrubbed after senior members of the BATF, FBI, and U.S. Attorney's Office met in February 1995 to discuss Finley's plan. End quote. Damn. Wake up. So crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get much more direct than that. Right. It's just right there. Like, he was going to bomb the fucking building, and then they were like, yeah, go for it. Not going to stop you. This actually kind of leads, you know, when when you read that and you really think about it, it, it actually sort of makes you wonder, like, was Strassmeyer? He had clearly convinced his this ATF informant that he was the ringleader. Mm-hmm. Like, if he was a provocateur, apparently he was doing, he, he had done poorly in Texas and hadn't, you know, had been found out, but he was clearly doing something. He was doing the job he was brought here to do at Elohim city. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he had convinced this ATF informant at least that he was the ringleader and that he had talked about it enough and had trained enough people and was speaking about it and had people worked up into this frenzy about it. So, I mean, it, it's really, it's a lot to sit with, but um, yeah. I really am also fascinated by the line that Millar was preaching that they had to act by a certain date or they would end up like the Branch Davidians. Like, yeah, that sounds a whole lot like he knew what, like, that they might get raided and that they needed to, like, I don't know, throw up some big numbers or something. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. And, and you know what? I honestly, I haven't read that about that part in a bunch of other places. I haven't seen much from Millar or much about Millar saying that, um, like that he was preaching any sort of end times um, or, you know, we need to act now to do something sort of thing. So this, seeing this from Carol Howe, who has been generally regarded as a fairly reliable informant um, in other places is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if Strassmeyer was acting as the provocateur here and was that enmeshed in the plot, it sort of makes sense if you, that he was extracted instead of eliminated. Um, because if you can't let this come out, especially not, you know, he's from uh, an allied country. You know what I mean? He's German, you know, Germany is an ally of ours. Like, they clearly might have been trying to spare them the embarrassment of one of their people being over here involved in this too. So like this opens up so many different avenues to think about how the bombing plot went forward. Yeah. 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 To uh, here's, I don't know, this, this is, I think relevant. I'm just going to quote, a little bit again from the Pritchard book because that's really really valuable for the stuff it like has about how and about um about Strassmeyer but this kind of gives a yeah a good picture of what like his role might have been um so here's Pritchard talking to Strassmeyer says I do understand Andreas I understand that it wasn't your fault are you listening to me it wasn't your fault so why not just come out and tell the whole rotten truth and get it over and done with you don't have to cover for the ATF Strassmeyer says you think it's as simple as that he says, I don't know, Andreas. You tell me. Who were you working for anyway? Did the Germans send you over? He says, no, no, they would never do that. 
He says, so who was it then? The ATF? The Bureau? Who were you working for? Look, I can't talk any longer. Just listen to me, Andreas. They're going to hang you out to dry. When this thing comes down, you're gonna, they're going to leave you holding that bomb. Or, And you know this as well as I do, you'll fall under a train one day on the U-Bond when no one's looking. And he says, got to go to work. He says, there comes a time in every botched operation when the informant has to speak out to save his own skin. And that's now, Andreas. And then Andreas says, how can he? He shouts into the telephone. What happens if it was a sting operation from the very beginning? What happens if it comes out that the plant was a provocateur? And then Pritchard says, a provocateur? He says, what if he talked and manipulated the others into it? What then? The country couldn't handle it. The relatives of the victims are going to go crazy. He's going to be held responsible for the murder of 168 people. Pritchard says, that is true. And Strassmeyer says, of course the informant can't come over. He's scared shitless right now. Or can't come forward. He's scared shitless right now. And then Pritchard says, it sounds to me as if you've got a problem, Andreas. And then Andy says, Scheisse. <laughs> Their interview like uh it's pretty pretty uh pretty direct there uh, see what a what a goof off talking to journalists at all <laughs> i know i know i mean that which which makes me you know wonder if there's something deeper going on there too if, if you know is is strassmeyer some kind of a distraction or whatever it's it certainly doesn't seem like it but like the fact that he's allowed to speak to journalists that way and that it's allowed to be published is is just remarkable. You know, that's very blunt talk. There's a British, worth keeping in mind, he's British. So like US, like, you know, mechanisms that would try to censor that might not have the same necessarily work, I guess. Yeah. Um, do we want to get into how um, Strassmeyer ultimately got back out of America? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, Holloway again, um, it's, it's, uh, it's mentioned in some places that Holloway flew Strassmeyer out of the country, but that's not true. Um, that is one of, I guess, JD cash is really good on a lot of this stuff, but that is something that he kind of goofed up on. Cause he'll, he'll mention in his writings that he, that Holloway flew Strassmeyer out, but that's not technically true. Like, I think that's where a lot of people, that's where I, I've, I've written that in tweets because I was quoting directly from like a 302 of a, I think of a, an interview with that's that uh, uses that phrasing, but yeah, you're right. It's not true. It's not right. So um, real the real story is yeah. <laughs> uh, Holloway accompanied Strassmeyer by car to Laredo, Texas, and then into Mexico to stay at a safe house. And oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. You kind of cut out there. What'd you say? A CIA safe house, according to Holloway. A what CIA he told safe house, yes. Um, he used to during down uh, south uh, when he was a pilot. Um, in Me- yeah, so yeah, go on. Right. And then at some point here, it's unclear exactly where, I guess maybe you know Booty exactly where. This is where Strassmeyer gives the if, the interview that we've referenced a few times with the soldier of fortune guy, uh, Richard Shiro. Um, and it was in Texas. Okay. And it's almost like that was some kind of debriefing or something. So this was after the bombing. This is after the bombing. This is sorry. I should mention that too. This is, er- this is early 1996. Like that's like really early to be doing an interview. Right. Um, so this is, yeah, less than a year after the bombing, but yeah. So early 96 Strassmeyer clearly needed to get out of the country. They, get into Mexico and then they take an Air France flight back to Germany. Um, Holloway accompanies him to Germany. And it should be noted like Holloway arranged that interview with Shero. And again, Shero 
worked for the CIA. So did Holloway. <laughs> and so Holloway puts, put Strassmeyer in contact with a CIA guy to tell his story, to publish in a possible like CIA rag, uh, soldier of fortune. Uh, yeah. So sorry, go on just to, no, I mean, a lot of the rest of what I, what I had to say about the extraction centered on Holloway and you've, um, definitely filled everybody in on the, the main points. Um, okay, I guess I, so. except for the craziest part. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> He allegedly said to someone who turned out to be an FBI informant, Holloway did uh, afterwards, that the, quote, the fucking truck was too far away. <laughs> he expressed satisfaction with the placement of the bomb. <laughs> and well, and he, he talked to McVeigh the day before the, like McVeigh called cause, McVeigh called the, 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 uh, the law, the racist law firm, because um, Holloway was working there. And I, so, the, some, so I think the claim that they make here for why McVeigh was calling there was that McVeigh wanted to talk to Strassmeyer. Uh, and I believe Strassmeyer gave him his card when they met in 1993. And apparent, I guess maybe that that might have been the, no, I, I think the number that was on there was the Elohim City number. So it's weird that that suggests itself that there was further connection there because, um, uh, because yeah, how would how would McVeigh have made the connection to cause uh, if he was trying to contact Strassmeyer if they didn't you know have any further contact beyond that one meeting? But anyway, he called that and ended up talking to Holloway for at least twenty minutes. Uh, depending on yeah, there are other there are some there's at least one source uh that seems pretty reputable. It was a defense team researcher for McVeigh that claims the talk was like 45 minutes or something. But yeah, so Holloway and McVeigh had a conversation on the phone the day before the bombing. Uh, and then later on, also it should be noted, Holloway doesn't have an alibi for the day of the bombing. And in fact was caught in a lie about that. Like he, uh, I forget specifically what the lie was, but he claimed to have been at a certain place that it turned out he wasn't at. Um, and then, yeah, then it turns out that he's talking to, he's talking at, at some, uh, gun show, I believe, uh, or conference of some kind he's talking. No, no, no. It was at a, uh, it was at a, I think a conference for like boat parts or something weird like that. Um, he is talking to this informant and yeah, he makes this comment about how the damn truck was too far away to do maximal damage. And then he makes a bunch of like technical statements about like the like blast over pressure of the bomb and like you know like stuff like that suggests he had a very detailed knowledge of like how close it would have to be to do the right amount of damage given the you know materials that went into the bomb um so yeah i don't know that's pretty 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 telling um uh, and again holloway worked for the cia just and that 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 comes from that's from an fbi report right i mean and that so that's nothing that we are like alleging yeah that's that's important like like you know what i mean like that this, this is from a public document because you know holloway is still out there and still working and still active and everything like these these are all from investigative documents that you can find Thank you for specifying. I just wanted to make sure because, you know, for reasons. <laughs> um, like, you know, that, that I guess that, that's the, the trick of this case is, you know, so, and 
the trick of this case is because some of these people are still out there and active. And it's a point that Richard has made a lot of times to Booty and I, and like, this is why it would be great if, and this is our ultimate reason for talking about this stuff as much as we do. It would be great if investigative reporters and the public cared about this stuff because they're people that know things that deserve to have microphones put in front of them and ask questions about this stuff because there's clearly so much more to the story that, you know, needs to be um, told. And while people are alive to do it, um, it, it should happen. So, I mean, Holloway is obviously a, a figure that, that seems to know more about it or was enmeshed in the plot in some way that, that I would like to see, you know, more investigative journalism done on. So, to my listeners, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, well, I really appreciate that you guys both not only have all of these facts, but then you also know who made the claim, where was it published, you know, what was the understanding at the time it was published, and you know, you evoke like you explain the context and like why that might not jive with the other this other source and vice versa and like no i really appreciate all that right like to me like there's two parts to when you start to dig into stuff like this and that is what's the government's story does it make sense are there holes in it and that is just simply critical thinking and reading yeah you know and the other part is, you know, what you might call conspiracy theory or, and, and I think it's perfect, perfectly rational thing to do too, is, is there an alternative explanation or a set of alternative explanations that might fill in those gaps based on what we know? And yeah. I mean, with this case, the, the parts that poke holes in what the official government story in, I mean, the, the thing is, there's almost nothing left of it. Like, you know, there, there's so much here. Yeah. And it's all incredibly well cited. There are no leaps in logic. You haven't cited anything supernatural or like particularly weird or anti-Semitic or like, there's nothing here that like a normal person who listens to NPR would object to, except for the fact that like we're engaged in a topic that is like gauche or whatever. Right. I just want to be clear that Dave Holloway is actually a ghost. Uh, I thought that was clear. <laughs> when we say um, spook, we mean supernatural ghoul type entity. That's what we've meant this whole time. So if that changes, if that changes anyone's understanding of all this, it's. <laughs> you know, they found ectoplasm on the. Uh... <laughs> I'll probably cut that. That's probably <laughs> on, the, on the columns. They found them on the columns. <laughs> covered okay wait wait we should we should talk hallway after this after all this Mm -hmm. goes on to uh so first of all he he and kirk lyons uh helped serve as like the fbi's like go-between uh during the montana freeman standoff in 1996 which was like a big you know Hmm. standoff thing and like apparently holloway and lyons were the ones that uh yeah, served as the served as the people that 
helped the negotiations between the militia and the FBI. So that's interesting. And then, and then Holloway goes on to like, you know, he goes and works at a bunch of like military contractors and subcontractors. He works for the Coast Guard. He works for uh, Panasonic at a Tesla Gigafactory. And now he works at NASA. So. Wait, okay. Let's see here. Tesla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then NASA. Yeah. <laughs> and this is Holloway. Correct. Yeah. Do we know what he was doing at Tesla or NASA? Um, according to his LinkedIn, uh, it's like safety stuff. Uh, uh, let me let me see. I think it was like human flight factors analysis or something like that. For isn't Tesla incredibly fucking dangerous to work for? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's. I'm pretty sure that's true. They have like way higher like workplace accident rate. Maybe because they hire spooks who aren't doing their fucking jobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like, I'm just really curious about what, like, whether he's like, yeah, are these the, really the things he's doing? Mm-hmm. Like, he worked for a while at this place, Thrustmaster of Texas, which is like a, yeah, a big marine propulsion thing that, like, manufactures parts for government, like, ships and stuff. And it's interesting to note that Roger Moore, another CIA asset that was involved in the bombing, like also ran a boat company that, you know, also <laughs> acted for the CIA and stuff. I don't know. There's all these weird little like, like hints of things that are like government contractor jobs do often have either no show or like cushy jobs for certain spooks, whether retired or active, like a family member of mine worked for a company that had a lot of government contracts and they they knew a guy that was wrapped up in Watergate who kept his mouth shut and got a cushy job as a result. Jeez. And like they knew him, like they like talked to him. Like you can read about the guy in like di- like different accounts of Watergate. So it's like these pork barrel jobs do <laughs> act as payoffs sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And they're also just a way to for people to make connections with each other too, I really think. Exactly. Um, do you know what Holloway was doing at NASA? Oh, um, yeah, let me... <laughs> it's funny that we just talked about not going to the LinkedIn uh, under your own thing. <laughs> I, I, I'm there right now under my own thing, so he, he probably, he's going to get another little notification that, uh, that uh, Boltzmann Booty is... He's just like, who the fuck is Boltzmann Booty? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's my LinkedIn... Uh, <laughs> my official LinkedIn account um no uh yeah he works uh the title the official job title is space flight human systems integrator parentheses human factors and then uh, <laughs> the description very long I'll just human systems integration for the robotics and intelligence for human spacecraft team working on the gateway lunar space mission or gateway lunar space station uh so yeah fuck, I don't know what the what this uh, got a lot of uh that sounds like it could be anything <laughs> yeah right has a lot of uh you know acronym i will say this a lot of people at nasa drive volkswagens if you know what i mean uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah it's uh it's incredibly uh it's unprecedented to find a nazi working at nasa <laughs> this is uh, this is huge <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So now we're at the juncture where we have to make sense of this, right? (laughs) I hopefully, hopefully it's clear to the listener and they can do some 
some reading on the, all of this if they want to, mm-hmm. um, that, that Andreas Strassmeyer in particular brings a lot of elements tied to intelligence agencies to the story of the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. Which, which clearly shows, I think, evidence of a wider plot. Oh, yeah. And uh, a great deal of people who knew that something was in the works, and yet the the obviously the bombing happened anyway, and that alone, I think, you know, in my my conclusion is, and it's the thing that keep, makes me keep talking about it is there needs to be further scholarship and research on all of this. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. Well, I really like what you guys said, where it's like, if you were to look at Jess McVeigh, yes, there is a whole lot of stuff pointing to something else, but he also comes across as crazy, Mm -hmm. which maybe, I mean, but like, if you look at Strassmeyer, like we've been doing, and it's to your guys' credit, like, it's not just McVeigh being crazy. Like, there were clearly federal informants and spies intelligence the whole nine yards all throughout this story they're everywhere in connection with this plot so like that raises so many of these questions that we've been chewing on right right and it's like strassmeyer is almost one column or Mm -hmm. like the strassmeyer holloway you know kirk lyons nexus is one column of cia players in the plot personally i think the name that we've been saying a few times that could have its his own episode is Roger Moore is is his, his own uh, column. The James Bond actor. The James Bond actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That was his alias, Roger Moore. Yeah, so incognito. Uh, yeah, I mean he that that's his own. You know, so like there's just so much more to discover about all this. No. Let me ask you both, because we were talking about this, and like I think Strassmeyer at various points said, "Sting, like this whole thing was okay." Like, <laughs> are we the, like? Because there's two theories, right? We know that like the lone wolves doing it alone is obviously bunk. So the two theories really are: did they? set this plan in motion and then it accidentally went off or did they set this plan in motion and intend for it to go off? That, those are the only other options, right? Or I should say like there are different theories that fall under those two umbrella categories maybe. Sure. Yeah. I would say this like sort of like kind of both because I think like there really was probably an FBI sting operation that was intended to prevent the bombing right like i think maybe even joint atfbi they were Mm -hmm. intending to stop the bombing and there's evidence of that like the there were there were fbi agents in oklahoma city bombing or in oklahoma city uh the like before the bombing there were no atf agents in the uh, murrah building when it when the the explosion went off and uh there yeah is good reason to think that they knew that something could happen soon, but then they, you know, maybe the, the truck didn't show up when they expected. And so they were like, all right, I guess it's not happening. And then, then the truck showed up later. But I think like 
that that isn't the whole story and that probably the CIA, yeah, had like penetrated the sting operation, placed assets within it and used them to like drive it to completion. Uh, and like, like that's seems like the most, yeah, like the only way to account for all of this weird stuff, because yeah, there, there's a bunch of stuff we didn't go into that supports like the idea that there was a sting operation that went wrong. But I like, the fact that you have all these CIA guys that are like adjacent and like, not just adjacent, but like, you know, housing and paying (laughs) like one of the main, well, but in fact, both McVeigh and Strassmeyer were housed and paid by CIA assets during the course of this. Uh, Like it seems as if, yeah, the CIA that, or yeah, CIA or some very parallel allied structure uh, penetrated dusting operation and made it go big. That's, that would be the, what I would say, but. Yeah. And, and like when we say something like the CIA did it or whatever, that's oversimplifying things probably because it really just takes a certain team of operators within to execute something. And, you know, and, and maybe that cell was very, was pretty small, you know, and even though other people knew that something was in the works, um, that's that, uh, the, in terms of the people actually participating in doing it, um, yeah, they find out there's some kind of a sting operation in the works, like the FBI and the ATF needed a win after Ruby Ridge and after Waco, um, and so this was going to be their win. They were going to stop one. And, um, and then, right, the, the, a dummy bomb was maybe put in place. Uh, and then they took that out and put a real bomb in its place. And then yeah. the building blew up. I mean, that, it's certainly, you know, that's, um, that's not, and that's, by the way, not just something that, that Booty and I think. This is based on conversations that we've had with, um, you know, Richard Booth, as we've mentioned, and, Wendy Painting, and if you listen to Jesse Trentadu, who is another attorney who is currently going through um, litigation to get some more documents related to the bombing uh, brought to light, um, and we can talk about him at another time too, but Jesse Trentadu is, is a lawyer currently working to get documents brought out. He has said you know, that that kind of seems like what happened here, um, some kind of a sting operation that went sideways. So. Like, I will say this, if there's ever a real reckoning with this on a, like, organizational, like, federal level, I am pretty sure that if we get close to that point, then it'll, the story will start to sound something like rogue elements within. Yes. Right? That's the classic play. Yep. Uh, And, of course, we have reason to doubt that, but... I, I'm like super with you guys on this. It sounds a whole lot like Sting went wrong plus, you know, a terrorist operation. And then maybe they would try to like do a 9-11 to like provoke something with Iraq or, you know, there could be a lot of reasons for doing this and allowing it to go forward. Mm-hmm. I I really liked... Uh, Richard Booth's appearance on Ed Opperman. Yeah. I would recommend my listeners listen to it, but he debunks a bunch of the reasons that people make up for why 
this was allowed to happen. Like people come up with the craziest stuff, like the Indian treaties were stored at the building or like something about the Clintons and evidence was stored there. Like the white water. Yeah. Yeah. There's like not a lot of reason for that, but if we think about nine 11 or something, I think, you know, we can probably get closer to a real reason that they would allow this to happen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of parallels. Yeah. The, there's not just the, uh, the Iraq connection that like with all the spooks pushing to blame this on Iraq at the same time, like I would say like, well, you know, at the exact same time that this like bombing operation was going on, like there were multiple, like, mm-hmm. like ongoing CIA coup attempts in Iraq, like, uh, <laughs> taking place at the exact same time. And, and like the year before the CIA blamed Iraqi intelligence for an, a, like an attempt on George Bush's life uh, in, uh, in. Uh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember where it was. Uh, I can't think of the, 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 where, where it took place, but they, they blamed, blamed Iraq for that and then used it as a pretext to like bomb the shit out of a little town or something like that like so uh, even and there's no there's actually no evidence that Iraqi intelligence was involved in that and so like there we have you know contextually there at that time there seems like there were a lot of like things going on that were uh, Iraqis as whipping boy type of thing yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but and just even beyond the Iraqi connection like you know like this had a big the bombing helped like kind of reorient um you know like continuity continuity of government uh protocol mm. like they they had sort of those those structures that exist like you know they were put in place to uh help the government continue to function in the event of like decapitation from like nuclear war or something right like but then after the USSR fell, that sort of those structures, which seem to be imbued with a lot of like extra governmental powers, uh, were kind of like losing funding and losing, uh, like, you know, reason for existing. Uh, and so then uh, the bombing happened and immediately the like main focus of, uh, like the main justification for funding those things and the main focus of like what they're, what they were what they existed for kind of shifted to terrorism. Uh, and so, yeah, like. And then they got a real shot in the arm after 9-11, for sure. But even even before that, the, the omnibus counterterrorism bill of 1996 that was passed in the wake of this is mostly focused upon foreign terrorism. Yes. Which is insane, which sounds insane when the official story is that this was all domestic. Yeah. So it's, it's it, there's a lot to it, yeah. And there were, there were changes to immigration law too, similarly based on the idea that this had some foreign connection uh, that uh, makes no sense. Yeah, like maybe if we limited the number of Germans visiting. <laughs> there you no go. disrespect to my German listeners. <laughs> Interesting. So, okay, well, one, maybe one more thing. So <laughs> I don't get the impression that Strassmeyer went native. What do you guys think? I kind of think, I mean, I think he was doing his job as a provocateur. I mean, it was, it's a dirty job when, especially when the stakes are that a lot of people could die. Um, uh, but I, I think I, I said it earlier 
I'll say it again. The fact that he was extracted and not eliminated to me points to an understanding with his handlers Mm -hmm. that he had done what he was supposed to do and that he was allowed to get back out. Yes. So I think he did his job. Because that's a good point. Sometimes they probably do eliminate people when they do their jobs. Oh, sure. But like they definitely eliminate them when they don't do their jobs. And you, that's such a good point. I, I and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's conjecture. That is what you would call. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just me interpreting kind of what I'm seeing. And, and if there's evidence to the contrary of that or from way off, I'd be, I'd be all ears on it. But that's just my my two cents on reading all of this and trying to make sense of why he's allowed to go on. I'm sure there are people that wish he would stop talking to journalists. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine. Okay, can I just ask to? You guys have found his dating profile, right? Someone found it. Yeah, I've seen references to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you explain it? <laughs> oh, I don't. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Oh my gosh, what was that? It looks a little bit like a fish, man. Oh, Andres. Yeah, yeah, Booth found um, Yes, yes, yes. That's, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. You know, like, right now, to this day, like, I'm pretty sure that he is, like, he's just, like, a little, like, weird historical minutia nerd now. Like, he writes, um, he literally writes books about, like, m- like, early modern European history or something. And they're like published on, like you can find them on Amazon, like books by Andreas Schrassmeyer. I'm going to do a book review. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. That's my next book thread. Very strange. Listen, I will say this. Andreas Strassmeyer, come on program to chill. We'll squash the beef. We'll see what you have to say. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's right. Oh dear. That would be incredible. Bring, bring Halloween on at the same time <laughs> we'll we have go. a round table we'll get dr painting and richard oh Booth and you guys oh my god the dream that would be incredible <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, yeah oh my god yeah wow i kind of want to i think i visited his page once too damn it <laughs> I, I didn't visit his page but i have visited the page of a whole bunch of people i really should not have accidentally <laughs> oh um go on go on sorry i really like i liked when richard booth was like oh we need to have like a truth and reconciliation commission and we need oh, these yeah. archives open and this and this but like realistically no one who's important listens to this show <laughs> All of the operatives who listen to the show are low level. They're not going to be able to do anything. Like right, right. What I'm after is further scholarship, further research, and further journalism on it. And I think yeah. if, if we get enough people, you know, talking about it on social media, or you know, just aware of the the weird stuff that's involved with this case, that. Um, Hopefully we can write the archives um, of the defense attorney, Stephen Jones, that are housed at uh, University of Texas, are basically being kept away from researchers now. Um, Dr. Painting got access to them uh, when she was writing Aberration, but 
they're now basically being held uh, captive there, um, which is kind of an insane thing for a research institution, higher education uh, university to do. Uh, they're hiding information, basically. Uh, yeah. Um, so getting those opened up, as Richard has said, um, and, uh, you know, a, a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, um, you know, continued fight for justice for the victims families um yeah absolutely like i don't know not to play the dad card i've got three young children and uh, like the the 19 kids that died that day i i think about that a lot yeah you know they they were pawns in a bomb plot there was a daycare in the in the building like good lord in heaven like are there no like lines that that they can't cross like that. That's, that's just something I think about all the time. That's just really crazy to me and yeah. kind of gets me fired up sometimes. So that's why I keep talking about it for sure. And that's where I'd like to see things go next. Just keep pushing for the truth. Excellent. What about you Boltzmann? Um, abolish the CIA. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep half of that in. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, no, I, I back. I, I I agree with everything that Bill said there. Uh, I I mean, I also agree with what I just said too. Um, but you know, <laughs> perhaps perhaps Bill's uh, uh, <laughs> could conceivably happen. Yeah, for the moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, I. It's hard to, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because it really feels like, yeah, yeah, a lot of the time this stuff, like it just, it's just a brick wall. You're just throwing, you're just throwing stuff uh, at a brick wall and it's hard to imagine that it's gonna, gonna, you know, break through. Uh, But like, you know, there, I think it does matter when people learn this kind of thing. Like, I think that gaining this kind of context about the sorts of crimes that like these organizations are capable of uh, is useful in and of itself. Just... Like I will say Boltzmann, you pointing out the comparison to the, uh, what was it? The Michigan governor abduction plot. Mm-hmm. That was Whitmer, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I really like that because like there has been, I think kind of a sea change in terms of like, the amount of people who transparently said, okay, so the FBI just organized the entire plot mm-hmm. and that these guys are functionally like innocent. Mm-hmm. Like that is a huge improvement, I think over the nineties where like this entire shadow world was like probably pretty uh, hard to discern. I would imagine. Yeah, that's true. Right. So I guess that's good, if nothing else. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I, yeah. helping people understand that can legitimately, like, kind of inoculate against the, like, the whole, like, strategy of tension or whatever you want to call it. Like, if you know, mm-hmm. if you know that, that, that it's uh, not random and then it's not something that's, like, uh, coming from, like, you know, like random people that you could walk right read. like i think that matters that to understand that and i think it helps like 
not, you know, prevent, it helps prevent the goals, whatever goals they have in doing these things. It helps those goals not be achieved if fewer and fewer people are actually like interpreting these things in the way that they intend for them to interpret. So, right. Just be, be skeptical, be very skeptical of their story. Yeah. You should assume the, that intelligence did whatever terror attack you hear about in the United States. In my opinion, I think that's completely reasonable. Like, I think that's the baseline more likely than not. Right. Exactly. If, 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 so if, if, if people learning about this makes them more likely to make that assumption and, then I think that's a very worthwhile uh, outcome of this, um, for sure. Really well said for both of you. I'm not going to try to top that. Uh, so I am going to put like your guys's Twitter, some th- some of the uh, links to Threads. I'm going to list out the sources that are on this. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, outline that you sent me. So I'm going to include all that stuff. Um, okay. Did you really, that kind of was closing thoughts, but did you have any other stuff you wanted to say or plug? I think, I think, no, uh, not really for me. Uh, I think I kind of said, I think we got everything out that I wanted to about this one. And um, we can talk about maybe a Roger Moore episode at some point. Um, I wanted to mention that Jesse trying to do who I mentioned at the end, Mm -hmm. his court date is uh, Tuesday and there's a chance we're going to get a bunch of PatCon documents. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm like Tuesday. Oh yeah. I'm, not, I'm trying not to get my hopes up, but there's a, <laughs> there's a chance. Cause if Jesse gets any of them, he immediately sends them to Richard and Richard's going to put, and Richard's going to put them online. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. So I mean, and there's some juicy stuff. Uh, like, yeah, I've heard. Yep. Yeah. A little of stuff that maybe, yeah, I'm not going to talk about. But anyway, in terms of, yeah, other stuff to plug, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is I think um, there could be further developments that are worth talking about. So the possibility of talking about this more is a, a good one. So, yeah. And I am going to put this higher up on my list of things to edit. So hopefully it won't come out uh, ridiculously late. No worries. I have jokingly said yeah. that I was trying to find him an American wife. <laughs> so he could so he could come home. We we've all been jokingly trying to get him a wife. I love that we confused you about this. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, uh I guess I maybe you saw like I called off the the wife posting cuz like I'm dating someone that's on Twitter. She she yeah. like yeah. like uh still looking for a wife right now. Like what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> we posted it into existence. <laughs> yeah literally yeah look yeah. the minute the minute she starts you, encouraging you to take violent action i've got some really bad news for you, you i'm with you she's probably you know <laughs> listen trust all women until they start fed posting and then right. you gotta cut them off right that's the rule for programming <laughs> fully agree fully agree take that one to heart for sure